in light of our Christmas season, um, I wanted to spend a few messages on this miracle of the incarnation, the miracle of <clears throat> God uh, becoming man, the almighty creator of all things, uh, taking on flesh, the flesh of his creation and dwelling among us. Uh, so that's going to be our message today. It's going to be uh, spoken of obviously on Christmas Eve and we'll probably come back to it uh, uh, the following week as well. Our primary text this morning is a well-worn passage that we preach, that we speak, that we use during worship a lot here, uh, but I'm hoping to mine it um, with, with hopefully some, some new looks, um, and it's Hebrews 4, uh, 13 through 16. Um, the book of Hebrews, it is a glorious book. It is a challenging book. The book of Hebrews says some of the most sobering, uh, difficult, um, arresting uh, words to believers that we, people struggled with for ever since it was written. Um, and, and the book of Hebrews says some of the most beautiful, reassuring, encouraging um, things ever written in scripture. It is kind of a book that for me personally, it hits me from extremes. I hear some of the hardest things from Hebrews and I hear some of the most encouraging, hope-giving things from Hebrews. And the author is an author that's living in the early days of the church and he's trying to care for a church of Jewish believers. He wants to see them uh, in the midst of a lot of pressure, make it safe into the arms of Jesus. Uh, he wants to see their faith endure and persevere. That's, the, that's a huge theme in the book of Hebrews is our faith enduring. Um, the author makes clear that that is the only kind of real faith there is, the faith that endures to the end. And this church has a lot of pressure on them. They have persecution uh, that's real and painful, threatening their faith. They've had their property taken for them. They know of other believers who are being imprisoned for Christ. And because of this persecution, a specific and unique kind of compromise is threatening them too. The biggest issue isn't so much the persecution, but the pressure the persecution is putting on them to basically give up on Jesus. And, and if they will simply put Jesus to the side and return to the faith of their Jewish ancestors, things in their culture will go much easier for them. Because at this point, there's a lot more uh, room in the culture for the Jewish believer, the, the person of a Jewish persuasion, there, than there is for this new strange sect uh, of Christianity among the culture. And so they're threatened on the inside and the outside. Uh, the outside of persecution is calling out a, um, that's okay, Ton. That's all right. Um, thank you for being sensitive, but that's okay. Um, and and in, this, in this persecution threat, in this compromise threat, the author of the Hebrews letter is trying to stand in the gap for them in some major ways. And he reminds them again and again in this letter that there is no salvation outside of trust in Jesus. They cannot go back to where they came from because the revelation of who Jesus is has come to them. And they need to hold fast to it. He shows them again and again in, this is where the most encouraging pieces of Hebrews comes, in great detail how Jesus Christ is the sure, the absolute sure, full, sufficient sacrifice for all of their sins, for all time. That God has shown his love 
to the world in his son and the offering of his son for their sins, but that there's no other name uh, by which we might be saved, though he doesn't use those words, that's his point, to turn their backs on Christ, to go back to their unbelieving life, to their pre-Christian life, was to turn their back on God's outstretched hand to them that they had come to, that they had felt and seen and experienced, and that to go back on that at this point was worse than ever embracing it in the first place. They would reveal themselves to be counterfeit. And so he exhorts them again and again, don't give up on Christ. Don't give up. And, and in the book of Hebrews, faith is, is not lip service. It's, it's clear uh, it, that it's something that changes our lives, that sustains our lives. It's, it's in Hebrews comes that famous phrase, faith is the evidence of things unseen and the assurance of things hope, hoped for. Uh, so much so that genuine faith blossoms outward into the lives of these believers. And so he wants them to really deeply fight and strive to keep holding on to the promise of Christ and that it might show in their love for one another and their love for God, their love um, for the lost around them. And, and so again and again, he exhorts them, persevere, don't give up. Persevere, don't give up on Jesus Christ. And in the midst of this long exhortation sits this passage that many of you know well that we Enjoy here, uh, not too infrequently. Hebrews 4, 13 through 16. And I'm going to read that part of it in the middle of Hebrews 4. And no creature is hidden from his sight. That's obviously God. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So I want to mine this passage in light of Christmas and this unspeakable gift of our creator uniting with creation in his son. I want to mine this passage to look at some of the most beautiful and hope-giving truth I think there is in all the Bible and all the universe. But we'll, we'll, as a jumping off point, I want to look at this sobering challenge in verse 13. And the author there says, no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And the context immediately preceding this passage is that he's been recounting the tragic story of ancient Israel, story of people who were rebellious and disobedient because they did not believe the promises God gave to them despite what they'd said with their lips in their desert wanderings at Mount Sinai when they agreed to follow the Lord and commit to him, they were faithless. And as God showed them miracle after miracle, as he showed them his strength 
and his faithfulness, they in return refused to take those promises seriously. God had promised to be with them, to fight for them as he called them to take the promised land, to give them the victory, but their response was a refusal to believe in God's power, to believe in God's promises. Their response was a refusal to believe in God's promises. And that led to them not following him anymore and hardening their hearts. And the author says that the word preached to them did not benefit because it was, uni- it was not united by faith in those who heard. And so this sobering warning comes in this kind of crescendo. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. There's no getting out of having to deal with your creator. He made you. He made you to know him. He made you to live a life of dependence on him and love for him and love for others. And there's no getting around it. There's no getting out of that. And and so the author is trying to challenge them to draw the readers out of the circumstances that they can see with their eyes. This Hebrew church, he's trying to draw them from just seeing the circumstances they can see with their eyes, the persecution around them, the temptation to compromise. And he's calling them to live in the reality of what they cannot see with their eyes. The God to whom they have to deal with. The God who sees everything. The God who knows the reality of their hearts and to whom they must give an account for their lives. And, and just to be honest with you guys, this is where if I'm reading the letter up to this point, I am bracing for impact. I am coming to the place where I am getting more and more stressed. <laughs> I'm coming to the place where I, I don't, I'm not sure I want to keep reading this. This, this talk of God seeing all things, that all my heart motives, that I have to give an account to him. I, I, I feel the encroaching judgment. I fear the encroaching condemnation. My little faith and my great shortcomings and sins being exposed and seen by God and, and knowing from this author there's a day coming where it will only be my soul before his courtroom that God sees all and knows all, what am I going to do on that day? What, what am I going to do with this God who's looking at me and seeing everything that's wrong with me? This isn't happy news to me. It's, it's fearful. But this is the beautiful thing about this passage. Just where this fear of impending doom starts to rise, as the author tells us that God is a holy judge, that he sees everything. He redirects my gaze. He redirects our gaze away from God's judgment, away from our sinfulness to the shocking, life-saving, grace-saturated hope that we can only find in Jesus Christ. So he says, in light of the fact 
that there's no escape from dealing with God in light of the fact that he sees everything, that he judges all, that everything's exposed. In light of all that, he says, don't despair. Don't pretend. No, he says this. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Fearful believer, he exhorts, don't give in to despair. Don't run into escapes that have nothing to do with hope in God. Don't put your hope in your own goodness and your ability. No, no, come to God through Jesus. Come to God through his mercy. Come to God through his grace. Put your eyes on Jesus. You have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. So first in verse 14, we're reminded that we have an advocate, a representative before God the Father, who, because he loved us, is given to us by God the Father. Jesus is our high priest. He is our representative before God. He offers himself in our stead. That's what a priest does. He offers sacrifices. And Jesus Christ has offered himself in our stead. And later we'll learn in Hebrews further in seven, for instance, that he intercedes for us constantly. The author is telling us that we have someone who advocates for us, who represents us before God. We don't come. We don't have to come before God and stand before his judgment judgment throne on our own. We have one who stands for us. And later on in chapter seven, he tells us more about the character of this high priest. He says he's holy. He's innocent. He's unstained. He's separated from sinners. And he's exalted above the heavens. That means he has authority over all things. Believer, this is who is representing you before God right now. May this not be old news to us this morning. Oh, please, God, may this not be old news to us this morning. There is one who represents you before God. In all your weaknesses and imperfections and sins, the one who stands as your representative is innocent, is unstained, is holy, is separated from sin, is, it is exalted in authority above all things. If you want a resume for someone to represent you before God, you, you can't do better than this. When, when you're in a great need in any area of your life, you, you want the best help. If you've got money problems, you want the best financial advisor. If you've got pain in your teeth, you want the best dentist. If you've got cancer, you want the best oncologist. If you have legal problems, you want the best attorney. Well, the God of the universe has been telling mankind for thousands of years that their greatest need is spiritual. 
And so God has given us the best mediator possible. The perfect, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from all sin, seated at the right hand of almighty God above all authority, high priest Jesus Christ. And all of his continued ministry is for you. He stands at the right hand of God this morning for you, working on your behalf. And all of that ministry is perfect. It's indestructible and it's effective for you before God's throne. Because he intercedes for you, not based on you. He ministers for you before God's holy throne, not based on you and who you are and your performance and your character, but based on his perfection and based on his all sufficient sacrifice for all of your sins. Therefore, the author tells this tempted and frightened church, don't give up your hope. Don't give up your hope. Don't renounce Jesus. Run to him. Don't renounce him. Run to him. Now, probably no one in this room, in this time and place in America still, is, is probably being severely tempted to explicitly deny faith in Christ from some outward authority. Our temptations mostly lie internally. In more subtle areas, where each day we go through motions of being tempted to put our hope or put our despair in other things. We, money, anxiety leading to anger, a craving for escape leading to laziness, a dissatisfaction with life and those around us leading to impatience and grumbling, a hopelessness that keeps us stuck on ourselves and makes us less and less useful for others. But the call upon that church in Hebrews and the call upon us is the same. Don't give up on following Jesus today. Don't give up on your friendship with him. Don't give up on following him. Don't give up on real trust, real faith. Instead, in your trouble, in your struggle, in your pain, run to him. Go to him and don't give up on him until you get what you need from him. Maybe more in keeping with the technical words of this text, run to the father through Jesus. And this is where the passage becomes more beautiful and where we see this beauty of this wonderful truth we call the incarnation. In verse 15, the author says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Central to the story of the incarnation is that God became a human being to experience what you and I experience. Central is the offering of his blood for our sins. And we'll talk about that next week. But what's in view here, particularly in verse 15, is that God became a human being 
to experience, to go through the pain and trouble and struggle of being a human being. God became, in a human sense, weak to know our weakness, to understand by actual experience what it is to try to follow God as a human. And now from on high at the father's right hand in another sphere of existence, we call heaven, wherever, whatever that means, as me and Jacob were just talking about this this morning, Jesus Christ, fully God, remains fully man. And he uses this experience that he had, understanding and tasting our weakness, to, to, to wean from that compassion and sympathy for you in your struggles. Puritan Thomas Goodwin said that this text, particularly 415, this passage right here, that it's, it seems to be taking our hands and laying them on the heart of Christ so that we can feel how his affections yearn for us. It's a beautiful idea that this Puritan saw this, this little verse 15, taking your hand in my hand and putting it on Christ's heart to feel his heart beating for us. He said that so it might encourage us against all that may discourage us. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland writes well about this passage. He says, all our natural intuitions tell us that Jesus is with us on our side, present and helping when life is going well. This text says the opposite. I love that. All our natural intuitions tell us that Jesus is with us on our side, present and helping when life is going well. This text says the opposite. It is quote, in our weaknesses that Jesus sympathizes with us. And then after Ortland explains the, the Greek roots of sympathy, uh, find uh, ideas in this, in this picture of suffering with, that's sympathy, uh, it reduces down to these two words, suffering with. And Ortland goes on and he says, sympathize here is not a cool and detached pity. It is a depth of felt solidarity such as is echoed in our own lives most closely, only as parents to children. Indeed, it is deeper even than that. In our pain, Jesus is pained. In our suffering, he feels the suffering as his own. Not that his invincible divinity is threatened, but in the sense that his heart is feelingly drawn into our distress. His is a love that cannot be held back when he sees people in pain. So what, what area do you feel most powerless in? What struggles in your life are you most frustrated about right now? What past failures 
do you rehearse right now and, and poison your present and condemn your future? Where are you tempted most right now in, in your way, in, in your life, in a way that just, it just corrodes your heart? What if I told you that the most powerful means of hope and even change for you was not in your resolute character and, and, in, and it was not in your decisions to stop doing bad and start doing good, but that before any of those actions, which, which may be helpful and necessary, but before any of that, underneath all that, needing to be the foundation of all that, what if I told you that your greatest means of hope and change is in believing that Jesus has deep and profound love and sympathy for you in that very area that you feel most shameful about, that you struggle with the most, that you find the hardest to get past, and that he longs to and can help you if you will see that about him. What if I told you that if you could read his thoughts and sense his heart, that it's in the areas of your greatest fears and failures that he is filled with compassion towards you? I think that would be life-changing for me personally if I could rehearse that and perseverate on that and hold on to that again and again and again and again and again. And I think it would be life-changing for many of you because this passage is telling us that central to, to why God became man is so that he could from an impassioned, sympathetic heart provide grace and mercy to you in those areas you find most tempting, most frustrating, in those areas you find you feel most weak, those chains you find the most debilitating and impossible, that those, those are the things that draw out his concern and heart for you. Because he knows how hard it is to live in this world and really try to follow God. He knows how hard it is to live in this world really trying to follow God. He knows the black hole-like pull of our weaknesses and temptations by his own experience with them. He was a man a human being just like us who felt the weight of what it is to struggle to follow God. He knows full well how hard it is to love people who don't love you and who you don't feel like deserve your love. He knows how hard it is to trust God with provision, with money, he knows how difficult it is to work hard when distractions say, give up. No one's looking. Take the easy way out. He knows how difficult it is to bite your tongue when anger is rising up or to speak out when there's a threat and you just want to be a coward about it. He knows how difficult it is to walk in purity when impurity entices. 
entices. He knows. He knows how difficult it is to forgive when bitterness and hardness would be, would be so much easier. He knows how difficult it is to trust either in our power or give in to anxiety about our lack of power. When God says, trust in me, he was tempted in every way. It doesn't mean he was tempted by his cell phone or to drive drunk. He, he obviously didn't live in our time period, but you name the category and the principles that apply across time and space, greed, laziness, lust, cowardice, selfishness, pride, dishonesty, indifference, coldness, selfish fear, you name it. He went through it and suffered its strongest pull. He suffered its strongest pull. Many of you guys have probably heard this before, but C.S. Lewis is famous for pointing out this, this truth, that Jesus knows better than any of us how hard temptation can be because he never gave in to it. He dealt with its full force. The, the moment we, any of us, give in to the temptation, the frustration, the escape, then it stops. The tension stops, right? If my kids are doing something and I'm just struggling and struggling and struggling and finally my last straw, blah, 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 at that point, I no longer feel the tension of trying to be patient. I've given up and I get to give full board to blah, whatever damage it does to their little hearts and shame and discouragement it gives to me. But, but I'm done with the tension of resistance, right? The battle may have been fierce for a time, but now it's over. So Lewis points out that only the one who stands against the full force of the temptation until the temptation dies can know how difficult, how powerful it is, who understands, who feels the force of its full power, who goes through that pain. Because that's what it is to resist temptation. It's painful. That's what it is. It's pain. And this idea helps us understand Hebrews 2.18, where the Hebrews author, speaking of Christ, says that he had to become a human so that, in verse 2.18, he himself suffered when he was tempted and he is able therefore to help those who are being tempted. So there's a consolation here that whatever difficulty you're in, as you try to follow God, whatever category it is that you're suffering through or trying to walk through or have failed in, you're, you're not alone when it comes to God. He, he isn't standing on one side of the ring looking at you with his hands folded. Ortland says, our tendency is to feel intuitively that the more difficult life gets, I don't, I don't know if I have this quote. Do I have this one, our tendency? Okay, so we don't have this one. But here's what he says. Our tendency is to feel intuitively that the more difficult life gets, the more alone we are as we sink further into pain, we sink further into isolation. Oh, don't you feel that? The aloneness of failure. 
But the Bible corrects us. Our pain never outstrips what he himself shares in. We're never alone. That sorrow that feels so isolating, so unique, was endured by him in the past and is now shouldered by him in the present. And I thought to myself when I processed through this, well, Jesus never failed. So he doesn't know what it is to fail and feel that shame. And I think that's really wrong. Because on the cross, who felt more the weight of shame from the failures of all of our sins than Jesus? On the cross, who felt more alone and abandoned than the one who was truly abandoned for us? Who felt shame more than the one who was covered truly with all of our sin? When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't pretending. He was experiencing our hell. The removal of God's friendship and presence for us. So Jesus may not have failed, but I believe he knows profoundly more than we do what it means to feel like a failure. And to feel the shame of that and the condemnation of that. And then in, in Hebrews 5, 2, this picture of Jesus goes further. And we're told this beautiful thing that I think we just breeze through. But if we stop to think about what it's saying, I think has a lot of fuel. It says in Hebrews 5, 2, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray. Since he himself is subject to weaknesses. He knows that pull. And it says that he is able to deal gently with those who are going astray. This, this is important to stop and think about here because this more deeply invites us into his heart of grace and mercy. We're almost done. Can you guys hang with me for a few more minutes? I mean, who's going to say no? That's such a dumb thing to ask. But let me just encourage you, we're almost done. Listen to this for a moment. In this passage, we're told that not only does he care for us when we're battling sin, Hebrews 5, 2 says that he cares about us with a gentle heart when we're giving into it. This is astounding grace. It says that he's able to deal gently with those who are going astray. It doesn't just say those who are tempted to, but those who are going astray. When we're already actively moving into that angry reaction, that hopeless despair, that escape into addictive habits. Jesus' heart is gentle towards us. It's not like mine, eager to judge and unleash, unleash the pent-up frustration. No, he, he knows. He took the judgment already at the cross. Justice is satisfied. He's not here for vengeance. His compassion and his concern and his longing to heal our backsliding is what's in view in Hebrews 5 too. His compassion, his concern, and his longing to heal our backsliding are what's in view here when it says he is able to deal gently with those going astray. So the question left for us is simply, why do I, why do you, why do we wait outside the door of help? When God became man so that he can pour mercy and sympathy and grace to help us in our straying and our wandering. 
That's the question left at the end of verse 15. Why would we stay outside this? Why would we give up on this? Why would we exchange a true, real relationship with the God of the universe that we're meant for, that is the only thing that can give us true, deep, and lasting joy? Why would we give up on that and trade it in for cheap substitutes when he's ready to help us with all the struggles and the desires to trade him in? I I don't think the message in Hebrews is simply, listen, don't go back to Judaism or you'll get it. I mean, there are places where I think that's under the surface or, or jumping out of the surface, but I don't think that's the core message, especially not here. I don't think the message is don't give up on Jesus or you'll get it in this passage. I'm not saying God's not afraid to say that sometimes if that's needed. But I think the message here in Hebrews 4.15 is don't give up on Jesus because he'll help you with all the things that make you want to give up on him. Don't give up on Jesus because he longs and knows how to help you with all the reasons that make you want to give up on him. He can help you with that stuff. That reason why you want to throw in the towel with him, with following him. It gives him pain. It makes him hurt for you. He hurts for you. So don't give up because he knows how to help you with it. Don't give up. He's able to help you with it. Don't give up. He will help you with it. Keep believing in that. Keep hoping in that. And you will see his help. You will see it if you don't give up on it. And so that's exactly why verse 16 calls for boldness. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is just 100,000% pure grace, mercy, goo. There is nothing in here about get your act together or get out of my house. No, it's, Are are you screwed up? Have you screwed up? Are you a mess? Come, come in, come in. He cares about you in that. He cares about that. He cares about you. He knows how to help you. He's hurting for you. I need this. (laughs) I need this all the time. I need it all the time. I'll just admit it. I cannot survive without these passages. I don't know how anybody in here who, who, who is trying to walk with Jesus can survive without the truth in these passages. How could we make it without this kind of God? What other gospel is there? There's just law and commandments and get your act together or I'm done with you. No, we need this. We need this. We need this. We need to give this to each other. We need to embrace this for ourselves. We need to give this to our children and to our spouses. And to those who've hurt us, we need this. Let us draw near that we might receive grace and find mercy. In our sins and temptations, perhaps the greatest mistake we can make is not giving into the sin. Listen to me. 
in our sins and temptations, perhaps the greatest mistake we can make is not necessarily giving in the sin, as damaging as that can be, but having such a poor appraisal and having such a low estimation of God's willingness and ability to help us that we just stay away from him and get stuck in ourselves and our hopelessness and our addictions and our despair and our misery and we don't go to him. Jesus came to us in our misery. He became one of us and suffered our misery so that we would always know the freedom to come to him for mercy. I close with this beautiful word from John Owen that I don't know was connected to Hebrews 4, but it could have been. He says, Let us then see the father as full of love to us. Do not see the father as one who is angry, but as one who is most kind and gentle. Let us see the father as one who from eternity has always had kind thoughts towards us. It is a complete misunderstanding of the father that makes us want to run away and hide from him. The father loses the company of his people because they are so ignorant of his love to them. His saints keep thinking only of his terrible majesty, severity and greatness. And so their hearts are not drawn to him in love. We must learn to think of his everlasting gentleness and compassion. We must remember his kind thoughts, which have been from eternity. Let us remember how eager and willing he is to accept us. If we did this, we would not be able to bear one hour's absence from him. Instead, we find it difficult to spend even one hour with him. Let then this be the first thought that we have of the father, that he is full of eternal love for us. Let's pray. Lord, I would just invite your people as we together, as your people come before you right now, I, I ask, I invite myself and I invite my brothers and sisters to just come before you with our ugliest places right now. With those places where we feel most stubbornly stuck, most tempted to be ashamed and hopeless. Maybe for some of us, we can't even articulate it. We can just bring you the pain of hopelessness and shame without even knowing what's at the root of it. Maybe for others, we know right now. But Lord, I, I, I come to you myself for these places myself and I, and I invite in this time just a silent few moments for each of us to come before the Lord and bring to him those places where we feel so weak and so hopeless, and so broken. 
And Lord, may you give us grace right now to look at Jesus commanding us to come for mercy based on his beautiful heart and his promise of compassion. And please hear us and answer us. So yes, brothers and sisters, let's take a few minutes now, a few moments now, and just pray in the quietness of our heart and bring those places to the Lord. Oh God, would you would you cause us to experience greater depths of your mercy and your grace that we might love you more that we might have more grace and mercy for each other that we might enjoy you more Please, Lord God, through Jesus Christ, transform us. Heal us. Nourish us, fill us. Make our hope in you and our bond with you stronger than it's been. We want to live with you in joy and in love and hope. We want to enjoy you and rest in you. We want our lives to blossom in goodness towards others and enjoy that, Lord. So please help us, God. We need it so much. Please be true to your promises that we've read today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.